Now, we've spent quite a lot of time on the show today talking about the people who came to California during the gold rush. But what about the people who lived there for centuries? Before becoming a U.S. territory, California had been colonized by Spain, Russia, and Mexico. Colonization had been devastating to native peoples. Those living along the coast were often forced to convert to Catholicism and to labor in the Spanish missions or on private ranches. Overworked and underfed, many died of infectious diseases. By the 1840s, perhaps 150,000 native people remained in California. The majority lived in the rich Central Valley or in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, the very places where miners would soon be heading to find their fortunes. I recently spoke with historian Benjamin Madley. He says that as Americans arrived, they brought a new, targeted violence against the California tribes. That violence was inflicted by the state and federal governments, as well as by everyday people. They all justified enslaving and killing Native peoples as the unavoidable consequence of American expansion. Once gold is discovered, the killing accelerates quite rapidly, particularly as an influx of prospectors and 49ers moved south from Oregon. And these Oregonians just Hmm. saw them as a dangerous problem to get rid of, an obstacle between them and the gold. But the turning point is really in late 1849 early 1850, there there were these two white slaveholders living on the shores of Clear Lake named Stone and Kelsey, and they routinely raped California Indian women, tortured them to death, reportedly shot them to death for entertainment. And so the Pomo and Wapo people who were living under their rule rose up and killed the two of them. And so in response, vigilantes first murdered and massacred large numbers of California Indian ranch workers and farm workers in the Sonoma and Napa Valley. And then the United States Army launched two separate genocidal killing campaigns. And and why was that the turning point? That was the turning point because the initial vigilantes who killed large numbers of California Indian people in Napa and Sonoma counties became the subject of the very first case of the new California State Supreme Court, and all eight men were released on bail. So this communicated a strong message to the people of California about how the state legal system was going to respond to the mass murder of Indians, and that was by granting Indian killers a pass. So what did the government do other than sanction this, other than look the other way? California governors authorized 24, that's two dozen, separate state militia expeditions against California Indians between 1850 and 1861. And these expeditions killed at least 1,340 California Indian people. At the same time, the state raised three separate bills that raised over $1.5 million, a huge amount of money at this time in history, for Indian hunting militia operations. And so these state militia expeditions then inspired, I think, over 6,400 murders of California Indian people by vigilantes. And when I first began the research, I thought that the killers must have been some kind of rogue element. But state endorsement for this genocide was only very thinly veiled. In 1851, California's first governor, Peter Burnett, declared, and I quote, that a war of extermination will continue to be waged until the Indian race becomes extinct. 
So making a race extinct is almost the exact definition of genocide, right? Yes, and between 1846 and 1873, California's indigenous population plunged from perhaps 150,000 people to just 30,000. So we know that diseases, dislocation, and starvation caused many of these tens of thousands of deaths. But the near annihilation of California's Indian population was not, as it is often described, the unavoidable result of two civilizations coming into contact for the first time. This was actually a case of genocide, sanctioned paid for and facilitated by state and federal officials. For example, in 1852, California's U.S. Senator John Weller, who later became the state's governor in 1858, he told his colleagues in the United States Senate that California Indians, and I quote, will be exterminated before the onward march of the white man. And he insisted that the interest of the white man demands their extinction. So this was not a crime that was hidden. This was something that you could read about almost every week in every little newspaper up and down the state of California. So do the indigenous people fight back? They do, but it's difficult for them to do so, and I'll tell you why. So attackers frequently surrounded California Indian villages and opened fire at dawn or under moonlight when Indian people were asleep. Once most of the men had died trying to protect their village, the attackers closed in for the final exterminatory executions, which they carried out with sabers or bayonets or hatchets or simply with rocks or sometimes their bare hands. I'm assuming that women and children were also killed in these raids. They were often killed, but they had a value. So they tried generally not to kill them, but to sell them into slavery. So it's hard not to notice the irony of California entering the United States as a free state at the same time that it is deeply implicated in a different kind of slavery. Well, one thing to understand about California is that while it entered the Union as a free state, it had a very strong and vocal pro-unfree labor movement. So not only were there hundreds and perhaps even thousands of African-American chattel slaves brought into California by Southerners. By 1860, the state has passed a law that allows for the indenture of any Indian, and that could be a child, a woman, a prisoner of war, anybody. They've also put into effect a system of prisoner leasing. So, uh, for example, people could be arrested for public drunkenness if they were an Indian under California law. White people would then hire them as leased prisoners by paying the judge for a week of their labor. And then at the end of that week, they would give them hard alcohol. Then they would immediately be rearrested for public drunkenness and then leased out again, often to that very same person who had incriminated them by giving them the alcohol in the first place. Wow. So, as everyone knows, back in the East, people are arguing passionately about African-American slavery. Do people draw analogies from one way or the other to that trade and that uh, subjugation? Absolutely. One of the really interesting things that happens in California is that sometimes free soilers, the very people who are arguing for the abolition of slave labor— they seek to justify the massacre of California Indians as the erasure of 
California's pre-existing unfree labor economy under Mexican rule. So let me get this straight. So they're actually engaging in this genocidal behavior because they want to erase slavery. That was sometimes the case. Yeah, wow. Do you think the gold rush appreciably changed this history? Did it accelerate it? Did it give a rationale for all this killing? Or is this something that would have happened anyway? The gold rush was absolutely central to the genocide of California Indian people. It attracted the largest mass migration of the 19th century in the United States Mm. to California. Before the gold rush, there were perhaps 13 or 14,000 non-Indian people in California. By 1860, that number exceeded 360,000 individuals. So there was a huge influx of manpower to carry out the actual killing. By the same token, the gold in California's natural environment provided a huge amount of money with which to carry out the killing. California politicians knew from the beginning that the federal government would reimburse them for the money they had expended on killing California Indian people because California's mining operations were providing so much money, a massive injection of capital to the national economy and to the federal treasury. Uh, My sense is this is not a central feature of the story of the gold rush. Did I just miss those days of school? You did not miss anything. What has changed uh, very recently was that the governor of California, Jerry Brown, acknowledged that what happened in California was, in his words, an actual genocide. Does that have practical consequences? One of the big questions is, will state officials tender public apologies along the lines of the ones issued by Presidents Ronald Reagan and George Bush in the 1980s for the forcible relocation and imprisonment of some 120,000 Japanese Americans during the Second World War. Should state officials offer compensation along the lines of the more than $1.6 billion that Congress has now paid to these Japanese Americans and their heirs? Another question for the state and federal government uh, bureaucracy is whether or not they're going to change the names that commemorate and valorize some of the perpetrators of this genocide. And these investigations are going to be painful. We can't bring back the dead, but they're going to help all of us, both Native and non-Native, to make more accurate sense of our past and ourselves. Benjamin Madley is a professor of history at UCLA and the author of An American Genocide, The United States and the California Indian Catastrophe, 1846 to 1873.